Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And I want to continue in that vein of worship as we look at verses 7 through 16. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband? whether you will save your wife. Let's pray. Again, Lord, we ask for your assistance as we continue in our worship service by looking at your word, that you would give us clarity, give us understanding. And again, not just so that um, the information would be clear, but so that our hearts would respond appropriately, really in in worship, that we would be shaped and molded in every aspect of our being by our encounter with your word. And I pray that you would give me special assistance in that endeavor. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So, in order to have a proper understanding of marriage, we need to approach it in light of the gospel. As Paul said last chapter, we have been bought with a price. Therefore, as Christians, we no longer live for ourselves, but for God. And we find more joy and satisfaction in living for him than in having, quote unquote, a fulfilled life. Pain, loss, discouragement, difficulty, rejection, all are preferable to disobedience. We'll say that again for clarity. Pain, discouragement, rejection, difficulty, all of those are preferable to us than disobedience. We would rather have a hard life than a disobedient life because of what Christ has done for us. His work on the cross, His grace towards us has changed everything about us. And in particular, marriage and how we understand marriage. So the world lives for self. Self Self-preservation, self-exaltation. Really, that's the root of all of our sin. And we're all born in sin. And so what drives us are those things. And that's, that's what drives everybody apart from Christ. Glory, success, health, security. But the Christian lives for Christ, for building up of his church and for evangelism, seeing the gospel go into every nation. Now I say all that before getting into this text, because in order for us to properly understand even what Paul's trying to communicate, we need to look at it in light of the gospel. 
Because the reality is we have been sanctified. That means set apart. We don't live like the world lives. We think differently. But often what happens, especially with something like marriage, is when these two realms, the world and Christ, come into conflict, well, which one wins? Which one wins in our thinking? If we seek to understand marriage in light of God's design, approaching it while holding on to worldly concerns, selfishness, self-orientation, is only going to cause confusion. So we're going to look at the Bible, and it's just, if, we, if we walk and try to read the Bible through this grid of self-centeredness of the world, it's, we're, just, we're not going to be able to make sense of it. One of the most famous stories in ancient Greece is about Alexander the Great and the Gordian Knot. So what happened is, as Alexander was advancing through Greece, he was just defeating army after army, eventually conquered all of Greece and then later on the world. And he stopped at the city of Gordium, where the legendary King Midas had uh, erected this little puzzle, which was basically a chariot with a knot, was fastened with cords made of the rind of a cornel tree. And Midas prophesied that whoever should untie this knot would eventually go on to conquer the world. Well, that was Alexander's ambition. And so he wanted to untie this knot as verification that that's exactly what he's going to do. Kind of to confirm the prophecy for himself. But Alexander, as he approached the knot, couldn't untie it because the ends were secretly twisted up and folded with inside the knot. So he couldn't see the ends to begin. However, not to be halted in his imperialistic ambitions, as many of you know, what he decided to do was take out his sword and hack the knot to pieces, thereby revealing the, the secret of this puzzle. And he effectively unwound that knot and effectively went on to conquer the world. Marriage in the modern world, I say, because I was trying to think of what's a good illustration of why this is uh, often a confusing subject uh, for even Christians. And I think it's this idea of the Gordian knot. The marriage in the modern world seems to be like a Gordian knot. Like Alexander, we're ambitious to understand and live out the Bible's instructions on how to have godly marriage. However, Given the massive nodding of confusion this world has about marriage, which our society has given to it, it makes this knot difficult to untie. And so if the Corinthians were confused about marriage, we in our society are all the more confused about marriage. The knots only become bigger and tighter. And so I would propose that if we want to reach the world for the gospel, see the gospel advance into every nation, we have to properly understand marriage because it's, it's foundational. I mean, as Paul says in Ephesians 5, it, the marriage is an, is an example of Christ and the church. And it's a foundational institution even in God's design for us. So we have to get this right. And I believe the better we understand marriage and live out marriage according to God's design, the exponentially greater impact we're going to have of the gospel in the world. And so if you think of marriage as the chariot and the Gordian knot as worldly thinking about marriage and everything else, I think attempting to untie the knot by starting with worldly ends will lead us nowhere and we will give up in despair of understanding God's design of marriage. So think of this Think of marriage in regards to this Gordian knot. So in light of that, I think we should take Alexander's approach. Instead of trying to look at marriage from a worldly standpoint, fixing all of its problems, we should start first at getting to God's design of marriage. And to do that, we've got to hack away the worldly thinking. And I believe that's exactly what Paul does. Paul goes right to the heart of how a Christian approaches marriage. Namely, marriage in light of the gospel, in light of our salvation. So again, 
the essence of worldly thinking and why it leads to confusion is do what you want. Live for yourself. Promote yourself. Enjoyment and prosperity is the chief end of man in this world. But if we take that idea into marriage, it's going to fail. No matter if you're a Christian or a non-Christian. Marriage wasn't designed to function that way. And so unless we are willing to set self aside, we can't properly understand God's plan for marriage. And so what we're going to do is hack to pieces with the sword of the Spirit our own self-centeredness in our own hearts. That's my aim. In order to be have healthy marriages, we have to recognize the problem is our own self-centeredness. But if we can realize that's the problem, it will give us great hope and I think success in God's design for marriage. So the Christians, all of us have been called to obedience and death to self. And these are exactly the principles that are undergirding Paul's understanding and counsel to the Corinthians regarding marriage. And this is recognized in verse 29. Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with this. And he says, for the present form of this world is passing away. So this is, we're going to get to this in just a couple weeks. This is Paul setting the context for marriage. Live in such a way that recognizes this world isn't it. Christians, your hope is not in this world. This present world is passing away. Marriage needs to be considered, therefore, not only in just terms of the present, having a good marriage now, immediately today, but in terms of eternity. Now, I, like you, I I believe have heard many sermons on marriage. Listen to many radio programs, Family Life Today, Focus on the Family, read numerous books on marriage, and many of them, not all of them, many of them have just real practical explanations on how to fix different things within your family, within your marriage. But what you'll see here is Paul does not give five easy steps to fixing your marriage. It's very practical. But he's not going to give five simple things to turn your marriage around. It's very practical, but it's gospel-oriented versus immediate gratification. Paul is thinking, if you want to understand marriage right, it's not about fixing certain things in your marriage. It's about understanding the gospel. And if you live in your marriage in light of the gospel you will have success. But if you think like the world, immediate gratification, immediate peace, immediate joy, and by I mean immediate, I mean in this lifetime, possibly, versus living for what God God has called us to do. So here's the outline for the text. Basically, Paul gives instructions to three different classes of Christians. Classes is the wrong word. Three different kinds. Uh, unmarried Christians in verses 7 through 9, married Christians in 10 through 11, and then Christians who are married to unbelievers in verses 12 through 16. So let's look first at instructions to married Christians, verses 7 through 9. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am, but each one has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am. So he's giving instructions to unmarried Christians. Now, we saw last week that uh, verse 6, the concession that Paul gave there, was most likely referring to what he said in verse 5, not here in verse 7. And the point is, marriage is therefore not to be seen as an adequate alternative to celibacy, but actually as a blessing from God. However, that being said, that doesn't mean singleness is lesser. doesn't mean singleness is greater. It means they're both good in their own right. And Paul here affirms the goodness of singleness. He says, I wish all were as I myself am. So in verse 7, Paul is not giving instructions as much as he's just sharing his heart. 
saying, this is what I think. I'm being honest with you. And saying that, it's, it's good to recognize that Paul did not have his aim as getting married, living in a nice house in the suburbs with a white picket fence, three and a half kids and a dog. His aim in his life was to see the church built up and to see the gospel advance into every nation. And so in light of what Christians should be aiming at, what he says is, I think it's better for singles just to remain single. And why? Because as a single person, you're freed up to actually accomplish those ends without any encumbrance. Paul explains further in verses 32 to 35. So later down in chapter 7, again, we'll get here in a couple weeks. But Paul says this, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So his understanding of singleness and marriage is all driven by what's what's in the best interest of the gospel. Not how can you be most happy? How can you be most fulfilled, most satisfied? That's not in Paul's mind because he's not he's not seeking to accomplish the American dream. And that's not just because he was a Jewish guy from Syria, I think, Greece, Israel, I suppose. It's because he was in love with his Savior. He understands the challenges that married Christians face, as well as the encumbrances that marriage has to pursuing ministry. And he's saying, yeah, honestly, I do wish all of you were as... I myself am. But then knowing how this could be misunderstood, he, he qualifies it. In fact, it's already been misunderstood. That's probably the issue he's addressing in, here in chapter 7. So he qualifies the statement by saying, each has his own gift. Now this is interesting. The word he uses for gift here is the same word he uses in chapter 12. Chapter 14. Charisma. Where we get the word spiritual gifts. It's the same word. So this is a spiritual gift. The point being is that God gives some people this gift of singleness and others he blesses with the joys of marriage and children. So understanding celibacy as a gift implies that this is not a matter of personal preference. Nor is it considered a meritorious feat that somebody seeks to master themselves by, in which they can take credit for. So again, let's be clear. A person cannot choose to have the gift of celibacy. Either he has it, or she has it, or they don't. It's a gift. It can only be bestowed by God, and it's not something someone strives to attain. But many of the Christians in Corinth were trying to do just that, even if they were married. They were striving for celibacy, to have this gift thinking that it was superior spiritually. And honestly, one of the reasons why I left the Roman Catholic Church, I grew up Roman Catholic, as many of you know, was because I knew, even at a young age, I felt God calling me to ministry, and I knew in order to go into ministry within the Roman Church, I would have to be celibate. And that bothered me. So my reasons for leaving the church were far less noble than Martin Luther's, although they were in line with what Paul teaches here. As Paul says in verse 9, But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The word to burn, or to burn with passion as it's translated here, it's a good translation, is peruomai. And it's a very common metaphor within Greek literature just to describe sexual passion, sexual desire. So if a person has an unquenchable passion to be married, they do not have this gift of singleness. 
So it's good for them to know that, to have that clarified to them. And that's okay. So is having the gift. So in summary, the reason Paul says that it's better to remain single is because one is given immense freedom with his or her resources and time that they can devote to the Lord. And secondly, they're now free to take risks with their life that they might not otherwise take given that others, particularly a wife or a husband or children, are dependent upon them. They can, they can go risk their neck for the gospel and not have any sense of shame because they died. And they left behind wife and kids. Right now I'm um, reading David Livingstone, the, the biography of David Livingstone, to my boys in the evening. And uh, really sad circumstances uh, caused David to leave his wife and numerous children uh, as he sought to advance the gospel in Africa. They were sent back to England for a numerous amount of years and the family basically just fell apart. And uh, I don't think that was the right decision for David to make, but um, it, sh- it illustrates the, the challenges of wanting to see the gospel advance and the cost that might take when you're married. And so it's good. It's a good thing, as Paul says, to be single because it frees you up in so many ways to serve Christ. So notice that Paul's overarching aim again is not personal happiness, personal ambition, personal exaltation. It's simply to serve God and the gospel. His gospel is rooted in that assumption. And that's why he says singleness is better. But if one will not be spiritually safe in their singleness because of their God-given desires for marriage, they should joyfully embrace marriage without any shame, thinking they're any lesser of a person. Next, Paul addresses married Christian couples. In these instructions, Paul is addressing Christian couples who have been persuaded that singleness is superior to marriage. They are therefore divorcing, divorcing sorry, their Christian spouses in order to free themselves up to do more ministry. Paul gives these instructions to married Christians in verses 10 through 16. To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice the parentheses in verse 10 where Paul says, not I but the Lord. Many Christians understandably stumble over these words because it appears that Paul is undermining his own apostolic authority. But what's really happening is Paul is simply differentiating instructions that Christ has already given regarding divorce. And then later on in verse 12, he's giving his new instructions based upon his apostolic authority. So he's not suggesting that verse 10 has more authority than verse 12 but simply that verse 10 was instruction that Christ had already given. Instruction that's already been established that they themselves could have referred to. In other words, he's saying in verse 10, what I'm, what I'm about to tell you is something you should have already known. Jesus has already addressed it. In particular, Jesus addressed this in Mark chapter 10, verses 5 through 12. And it's this section of scripture that Paul is referencing largely in his instruction to the Corinthians. And Jesus said to them, referring to the Pharisees, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment regarding divorce. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall not be, shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So you might be wondering, as I did, what is the difference between the two words Paul uses here, separate and divorce? That's uh, in the previous chapter 7. Paul uses two different words here. And the answer is simply none. 
Separate and divorce are being used synonymously. They both refer to divorce, and that's actually seen in the context. To separate oneself from their spouse is to get divorced. And Paul is probably drawing on the Old Old Testament declaration that Jesus refers to here in Mark. Here in Mark. Um, What God has brought together, let no man separate. That's referring to divorce. And so that's probably how that, why he chooses to use two different words. But they mean the same thing. He's talking about divorce there. So the question comes up, what should be done if a divorce has already taken place? Paul makes it clear, either she is to remain single or else be reconciled to her husband. That is, if she wants to be married again, it should be to her previous husband. They need to seek reconciliation as Christians. Well, what about the case of her being married to an unbeliever? After all, doesn't Paul say in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 that Christian should not be married to unbelievers? Do not be equally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? So if they've heard these things, that they shouldn't marry unbelievers, and they're already married to an unbeliever because they got saved, perhaps, in a, after being in a marriage with an unbeliever, what do they do? And the Corinthians may have been asking such questions as these. Is marriage between a believer and an unbeliever still a binding relationship? Now that they've been saved, should they remain married? Especially since believers are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit in one flesh with their spouse. I mean, if you think about what he said the previous chapter, that a man who joins himself to a prostitute is defiling the holy temple of God because the Holy Spirit indwells us. I mean, that's a logical question to ask. Is union between an unbeliever and a believer defiling? Does the marriage relationship change when one of the partners becomes converted? Well, this is the situation Paul addresses in verses 12 through 16. Instructions to Christians married to unbelievers. To the rest, that is, those who are married to unbelievers, I, not the Lord, I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of the wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? Again, as I said previously, when Paul says, I, not the Lord, in that parenthesis, he's not suggesting that he has any less authority than Christ did. But just that Jesus himself did not speak directly to this situation when he was speaking to the Pharisees about divorce. So what he's doing now is applying what Christ has already said, how Christ has already instructed regarding divorce to the Corinthians specific situation. Particularly, what to do when married to an unbelieving spouse? What he says in verses 12 through 13 essentially is, don't divorce if your unbelieving spouse is willing to stay. As in the case of two married believers, Paul's instruction is no divorce. If the unbelieving partner is willing to remain, then the Christian partner must not seek a divorce. And notice that that statement, no divorce, is made four times in verses 10 through 13, which tells us the marriage covenant is in no way changed when one person is born again and the other is not. That's a remarkable thing to think about. Because getting saved changes everything about us. But not marriage. It doesn't void the marriage covenant. Marriage is sacred even outside the gospel. 
Now let that truth just sink in. Because we tend to think very lightly of marriage in our culture. That's why we think lightly of fornication, too, and sexual immorality. This is such a um, powerful, God-designed institution that it remains pure even when you have a believer with an unbeliever, when that believer gets saved within it. It's, that's a profound truth about marriage. And this gets back to the importance of what Paul warned about in chapter 6, that when we join our bodies to another, a supernatural event takes place. The two become one flesh. And so conceding to the divorce would just have massive ramifications on the marriage. Paul is saying marriage doesn't defile the sanctified Christian, but the sanctified Christian sanctifies the marriage. Sanctified Christian sanctifies the marriage. Unbelievers are made holy by the Christian. Look at verse 14. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. So it says, the husband is made holy. The, the word holy means to be set apart. Paul is not saying, as some people misunderstand here, that the unbelieving spouse is suddenly saved because this, they're, in mar- they're in a family. They're, in, they're married in a marital relationship with uh, the Christian. Rather, he's saying that on account of the fact that the Christian does not live for the things of this world, that is, they're set apart, they're sanctified, the unbelieving spouse and their children are affected by that believer's life, by the choices they make. More than that, they are protected from the consequences of sin and other foolish decisions. Now, our country has experienced a kind of this, I'd say. So many of our founding fathers were believers. And the pilgrims came in order to establish a Christian nation here. And the impact of Christianity our nation has been profound. And I believe we are experiencing some of their blessings up until this day. And so in that sense, to some degree, the impact of the gospel has been sanctified. Has sanctified our country by Christians. Now, again, that doesn't mean that everybody in our country is saved or that America is somehow special in God's eyes. But it's saying that God has blessed our nation, I believe our nation's history, in light of how many Christians have lived here and how much devotion many of our leaders have had to the gospel. God has blessed our country by virtue of his children here, just as it appears he's doing now to China, despite all their... Uh, the, the evil rulers there, there's so many Christians, even though many of them are in the underground church, God is blessing that country, I believe. So I think it also means that the unbeliever is sanctified in another way, in that they see firsthand the effects of the gospel on a person's life. They get the benefit of seeing your life lived out 24-7. So, I mean, just think about this. The impact that 24-7 gospel witness would have. It's better than watching Billy Graham on TV for just an hour, maybe once a year. Every day, they get to see the reality of the gospel. And in that sense, they're set apart. Both the unbelieving spouse and the children. With that being said, if an unbeliever abandons the marriage, spouses, though, are not enslaved to them. Verse 15. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. 
God has called you to peace. Now, the word enslaved here has caused a little bit of controversy in how to apply this verse because it, um, it, it, many people believe it, it indicates something about remarriage and divorce. So though there are those who interpret verse 15 as allowing divorce and remarriage in the case of abandonment in the interests of preserving peace. And so Paul is seen as exercising his pastoral privilege in modifying the teaching of Jesus by adding another exception, desertion. Uh, Jay Adams, the founder of biblical counseling, or a leader in biblical counseling, takes this view and he interprets verse 15 as suggesting the following. All the bonds of marriage have been removed. He is released entirely from every marriage obligation and is totally a free person. Nor is there any obligation to be reconciled in marriage. So Adams takes the first view, which is if divorce is acceptable, so is remarriage. There is one other major view that I'll talk about in just a second. Well, just I guess I should go ahead and mention it. And that is, That since there are clear prohibitions against remarriage and none clearly condoning it, remarriage is only acceptable after death. So the, the question that all of this debate really boils down to is, or does an acceptable divorce mean an acceptable remarriage? So the majority view amongst evangelicals is the first if a divorce is acceptable, so is remarriage. This is the view held by, again, most evangelicals, but in particular, most notably, John MacArthur, Alistair Begg, and Jay Adams. And this was my position up until yesterday, after I had to mentally wade through massive amounts of ink spilt on this issue. What I've been through studying the text and all the intricacies and Elements in this discussion is I feel pressed by the text to embrace the other view that that because there are clear prohibitions against remarriage and there are none clearly condoning it, I believe remarriage is only acceptable after death. I was given a little bit of comfort in that position, especially since the president of the seminary that I attended doesn't take it. I was given a little bit of comfort knowing that this is the position taken by John Piper. And he's written some really helpful papers on this. I have a hard time embracing the first position for a number of reasons. And I'll just give these to you. First, it's very unlikely that Paul would permit in verse 15 something he explicitly forbade in verses 10 through 13. Do not get remarried. Secondly, while Paul recognized the possibility of divorce among Christians in verses 10 and 11, under the command of Jesus, remarriage to another partner was not allowed. So why would he allow it in this case and not the preceding one? Why all of a sudden would it be okay to get remarried in this case? Thirdly, the opportunity to lead an unbelieving spouse to Christ in verse 14, would only take place through the continued or reconciled marriage, not through divorce and then remarriage to another partner. The, the best way to reach that partner for Christ, which is what should be primary in our hearts if we've been transformed by the gospel, that should be what burdens us. The best way to do that would be to continue to seek reconciliation. And fourthly, Paul is quite familiar with the concept of remarriage, and he mentions it three other times in Romans 7, 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verse 39, and also 1 Timothy 5.14. And I'll bring those passages up on the slide so you can look at them. And I won't read all of them. But despite to say in all of these passages, he mentions remarriage, but never once does he say that it's acceptable except in light of death. Therefore, I think it's best to conclude that a deserted spouse has the same two options that Paul gave 
earlier in verse 11. Reconciliation or lifelong singleness. I also appreciated what Piper had to say in his uh, personal position paper on uh, divorce and remarriage. You can look that up on DesiringGod.org if this is something you want to spend more time investigating. He says this, and I think I would embrace this as well. I am aware that men more godly than I have taken different views. Nevertheless, every person and church must teach and live according to the dictates of of its own conscience, informed by a serious study of Scripture. So Christ's prohibition against divorce, I say, I believe, does not enslave the believer to maintain the union against the wishes of an unbelieving spouse who insists on ending the marriage. I think that's Paul's point here. You're not enslaved to the prohibition that you can't get divorced. So if your unbelieving spouse wants to get divorced, no longer wants to live with you, Don't feel like you have to be compelled to chase them all over the Roman Empire in order to not disobey this commandment. Rather, God has called us to peace. God's plan for us is not that we would be constantly fighting and quarreling with anyone, let alone our spouses. And that becomes the norm when people no longer desire to live together. They fight and they quarrel. But God's desire for us is to live at peace with others. And this truth is emphasized in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2. When Paul says that we should pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So conceding to the divorce will allow for a break with the immediate tension that is felt within the marriage. But it's important to recognize that even though uh, such a break will give some peace to the relationship, it's not the greatest peace that God provides. And it's really not the greatest peace that he extends to an abandoned spouse. And I get this from what John says, or Jesus says in John 16, verse 33. He tells the believers, in this world you will have trouble. I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have come the world. Jesus gives all of his instructions, knowing that he is about to send them out into the world as sheep amongst wolves. And he says, I tell you this, just let you know, life is going to be hard. I'm not promising you an easy life. You're going to be in situations that are going to be difficult and painful. But take heart. I've overcome the world. This is the peace that I offer you. Christ assures his followers that even though they live in this troubled world, he has given them peace. So what allows us to endure in the midst of uh, Painful tribulation is not the promise that God's going to give us a quiet life, but the promise that Christ has already overcome the world. He is sovereign over everything that's happening. All authority has been given to him and he is with us in everything that happens. Everything that happens in a rocky marriage, in a difficult work situation when you're persecuted for preaching the gospel and hated and despised and rejected by your family, you're not alone, Christian. Remember what Christ said to Paul when he was persecuting the church. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He's with us in this. We might feel alone, but we are most assuredly not alone. As David says in Psalm 32, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The peace that the gospel gives us is the peace that enables us to trust Christ even to accept divorce when an unbelieving spouse is insistent upon it. 
We can trust Christ. We're not alone. We might feel rejected, we might feel abandoned, but we're not alone. He's with us. So the Christian wife should let her husband go. Christian husband is wife. Even if that might lessen the possibility of reaching him for the gospel. As he says in verse 16, For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you'll save your wife? I recognize Paul is giving this phrase to comfort the spouse who's been abandoned by an unbelieving husband. Paul is talking to real people. He's not just writing a textbook here. He's offering comfort to people who have been truly abandoned. If this was a wife, being abandoned in the Roman world was not a comfortable situation. What does he say to them? To comfort them. How do you know whether you'll save your husband? He doesn't offer a gentle platitude like I might be tempted to do. There, there. God will take care of you. Everything will work out in the end. He seeks to comfort them assuming that what they're grieving over is not the loss of their marriage primarily. He assumes that what they're grieving over is the loss of the opportunity to reach their spouse for Christ. Because he assumes they think like Christians, not like the world. Because this is what every believer primarily cares about. That's why we love singing with Martin Luther, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, but God's truth abides still. And why do we care about God's truth? Because we want people to know the truth, particularly our family. I mean, I would, if there was any doubt that my children wouldn't be reached with the gospel, there wouldn't be anything I wouldn't be willing to do. And I believe you you feel the same way. Or your spouse, if they were unmarried. That's your greatest desire because you believe what God says about salvation and hell. So the comfort Paul offers is that they're not responsible for the spouse's salvation. They're not responsible. The conversion of the unbeliever is not guaranteed by the continuation of the marriage. However, if the spouse is willing to stay, there is significant hope. Because, again, they get that gospel witness 24-7. They get to see it's not just a philosophy. It's not an idea. This person really doesn't live for themselves. They're sanctified. They're different. And, they got, and they're wondering, why are you so different? What's changed? And constantly, opportunities for the gospel are available. The Christian life is a life of hope. Paul's giving us hope here. But most of the hopes that we have, we don't expect to find or have realized in this life. That's why I love 1 Peter 1.13. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you. When? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Set all of your hope there, Christian. That's where your hope is. That doesn't mean life is going to just be all morose. No, we are sorrowful yet always rejoicing, right? Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about the life of Jesus and his dead body so that others might hear the life, have the life of Christ in them. Our life is that contradiction of difficulty, hardship, sacrifice, pain, and yet peace and love. And joy, and patience, and kindness, and gentleness. Where does that come from? Christ gives peace, not as the world gives. He gives it through the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, that's yours. So that you can abide in Christ, and as you abide in Christ, 
You can maintain the fruit of the Spirit. doesn't matter what the situation is. Situations don't dictate the fruit of the Spirit. Christ in you, the Holy Spirit in you, is what produces the Holy Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. One final comment. It's important for us to remember that Paul here is giving instructions regarding divorce, not condemnation. He isn't kicking the Corinthian divorcees into the, in the teeth, but he's trying to help them understand God's will for marriage. And so if you're divorced, hear that. This is not a condemnation of you. Rather, it's an elevation of marriage. And so if you're divorced, my counsel to you would be hold on to the same promise that every single one of us is holding on to in this room. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we're reminded again that apart from you we have nothing. We, would have, we had no hope in this world. No real hope. We were lost and blind in our sin, not even realizing that we were by nature children of wrath. He changed everything. We once were blind, but now we see. And Your grace abounds towards us. God, we don't want to continue seeing marriage as the world sees it. As just a a means to a tax break. Or a means to an easier life because you have two incomes. Or a means to have children. Or a means to have sexual fulfillment. Forgive us, Lord, for the times when we have seen it as such a base thing rather than as You've designed it to be a, an example of Your unchanging, immutable love for us. And Lord, I pray that we would live out Your design so that we would be greater lights in this world. I pray that You would help us in our marriages that we would conform to your word and not to our selfish desires, that you would continue to hack to pieces the selfishness and the pride and the sin that so easily entangles us so that we might run the race set before us in marriage for the sake of your glory and the spread of the gospel. We ask these things in your name. Amen. So now we're going to...